We're very pleased to have a, a colleague of mine now, I'll tell you about that in a second, uh, Gitanjali Chander, who is at Johns Hopkins. And she and I started working, this is the first time we've actually met, although we've been on conference calls together for the last uh, uh, 45 years, it feels like. And um, we've been working on a SBIRT project, which I mentioned earlier, this concept of screening, brief intervention, and treatment uh, for alcohol. And it looks like that project is going to be moving forward, and we're very excited about that. But I'm actually equally excited about having Gitanjali here because she really is an expert on alcohol interventions that are scalable and implementable and things that we can actually do. So she's going to talking about addressing the alcohol use among our patients and it sounds like we all struggle with that and it usually drives us to drink. So welcome, Gitanjali. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It's a great pleasure to be here today to talk to you about um, alcohol use among persons living with HIV. Uh, the learning objectives are as follows. Following the presentation, I hope that you all will be able to recognize the impact of alcohol misuse on HIV disease outcomes, that you'll be comfortable screening for alcohol, hazardous alcohol use and dependence in your clinical care settings, and to describe the role of brief alcohol intervention and alcohol pharmacotherapy in outpatient settings. And this is the overview of the talk. First, we'll talk about the prevalence of alcohol misuse. Then we'll move into screening. Then we'll discuss harm reduction and treatment strategies, including screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, alcohol pharmacotherapy. And then we'll briefly touch on the importance of identifying co-occurring mental health disorders. So why devote a plenary session to uh, the discussion of alcohol use among HIV-infected individuals? Well, first, alcohol use is prevalent among persons with HIV. In national samples, um, close to 50% report any use of alcohol, and hazardous alcohol use is twice that of the general population. Alcohol use also worsens comorbid medical conditions, including hepatitis C, hepatitis B, diabetes, and hypertension. As we're seeing people live longer with combination antiretroviral therapies, we're actually seeing individuals die from diseases that are not HIV-related. Uh, perhaps the most salient is end-stage liver disease, uh, which is from hepatitis B or C, which is certainly exacerbated by alcohol use. Alcohol use is also associated with increased HIV transmission risk behaviors, um, including um, unprotected sex, multiple sex partners, um, sex within the context of alcohol use, and also high-risk um, injection-related behaviors. And finally, um, alcohol use is associated with HIV disease progression, treatment outcomes, and mortality. In a study in the Johns Hopkins HIV Clinic among approximately 1,700 individuals, hazardous alcohol use, which is greater than seven drinks per week or three drinks per occasion in women, or greater than 14 drinks per week or greater than four drinks per occasion in men, um, was associated with lower odds of heart receipt um, adherence and viral suppression. And what's important to note from this slide is that when you look at hazardous alcohol use alone or in combination with drugs, you see these effects. And this really drives home the point that alcohol use itself is an independent risk factor for poor um, outcomes. So a lot of today's presentation is case-based, and we're actually going to move to our first case. 
SJ is a 28-year-old woman who presents for her routine three-month follow-up appointment with her HIV provider. She's been in care for four years, having acquired HIV through heterosexual transmission. She's received ART for the last two years with a persistently undetectable viral load and a CD4 count of 553 cells per millimeter. She states she's been doing well, but recently developed a thick vaginal discharge. On physical exam, she's found to have trichomonas. You return to her room to discuss the results of her wet mount and learn that her most recent sexual partner was someone she met while at a club after having a few drinks. You can see um, her medications, which include FTC, tenofovir, ritonavir, adizanavir, and medroxyprogesterone. All of the following would be appropriate next steps, except one, give her a prescription for metronidazole, two grams PO times one, and ask her to follow up in three months. Two, counsel her on the importance of condom use, even while on medroxyprogesterone, which alone will not protect her from STIs and will not prevent her from transmitting HIV to others. Three, screen for illicit drug use. And four, explain that her sexual partner will also need to be treated with metronidazole and that he should be referred to treatment. So 46% uh, chose one, and that is indeed the correct answer. Um, she did, she did it say that she had been drinking and had sex while under the influence of alcohol. So to just give her a prescription and ask her to follow up is really not enough within this context. Um, I think the other ones, uh, it would be important to screen for illicit drug use. If she's using alcohol, she may be using other um, drugs as well. Um, so let's move on and talk about the approach to screening for alcohol use in HIV clinical settings. So who should we screen? I think this is fairly obvious. All persons presenting to care. And you want to screen at baseline, and if negative, repeat at least annually, and if positive, at every visit. So what should we use? The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism actually recommends a single question. So it's not, not too labor-intensive to screen. They ask, how often in the last year have you had four or more drinks for women or five or more drinks on one occasion for men? And if it's greater than one, then you want to follow up with more detailed quantity frequency questions. For example, how many standard drinks do you have on a typical drinking day? How many days per week do you typically drink? You can use the audit C, which is a three-question um, validated instrument, or follow up with the cage. It's important to clarify um, that alcohol includes beer, wine, and liquor. A number of patients will say, I don't drink, I just, you know, have beer. Um, I'm sure many of you have encountered that. It's also important to uh, recognize that these definitions really rely on your knowledge of what a standard drink is. So the most important thing to realize is that a standard drink is any drink that contains 14 grams of alcohol. So that's a 12-ounce uh, fluid ounce of regular beer, 8 to 9 ounces of malt liquor, uh, a glass of table wine, or 1.5 uh, ounces or a shot of 80-proof liquor. Now, in Baltimore, a standard drink is often this. <laughs> this is a 40-ounce. These are pictures that were taken from the liquor store down the street from our HIV clinic. This is actually equivalent to three and a half um, standard drinks. So when my patients say they're drinking 240s um, 
and they may actually say they only have two drinks. This is actually what they mean. And this is a pint of vodka. This is 11 standard drinks. And if, you, if a patient says a fifth of vodka, then you're hitting 17 standard drinks. Other clues that your patient may be drinking, new sexually transmitted infections, that they've had a change in medication adherence, they're missing appointments, they have depressive symptoms, symptoms of, symptoms of anxiety, changes in laboratory parameters, elevated AST when they've had a normal AST. Okay. In screening for alcohol use, you ask her how frequently she drinks three or, three standard, three or more standard drinks per occasion. She replies that every night, Friday night, she goes out with friends and has three or four drinks, but that she does not drink during the work week. She states that her alcohol use does not interfere with her work and that she never drinks and drives. How would you classify her drinking pattern? One, she's a moderate drinker. Two, she's a hazardous drinker. Three, she has alcohol abuse. Or four, she has alcohol dependence. Great, so uh, the majority of you said she's a hazardous drinker, or 41%, and that is, in, in fact, the correct answer. And we're actually going to go through these definitions in the next few slides, because where an individual falls on this spectrum actually determines how you restratify them and choose to treat them. So at-risk alcohol use, what is hazardous drinking? For men, it's greater than 14 standard drinks per week, or greater than four drinks per occasion. And for all women and men greater than 65, it's greater than seven drinks per week and greater than three drinks per occasion. This hazardous drinking is really the level at which puts you at risk for consequences, but the individual has not experienced consequences as yet. And we'll get to why that's important. Binge drinking is drinking to a BAC of 0.08%. So for men, that's five or more drinks in two hours, and for women, four or more drinks in two hours. And this isn't set in stone because obviously people have different uh, body habits. So what's problem drinking or alcohol use? So this is drinking above the established cutoff with one or more additional social, interpersonal, behavioral, or medical consequences. So for example, if an individual is drunk driving, um, if they're having relationship trouble, if um, they're missing school or work, they're having legal problems. And you'll notice that um, I don't have abuse here, but that's actually because in the new DSM-5, they're actually removing the abuse um, definition. So we're going to just call that harmful alcohol use. And what's alcohol dependence? So alcohol dependence is if you have any three of these um, in the previous 12 months, so tolerance, which is a need for an increased amount of alcohol to achieve intoxication or the desired effect, withdrawal as manifested by tremors, sweating, insomnia, um, or the substance is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal, taking the substance in larger amounts over a longer period of time, a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control use, a great deal of time spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance um, or recover from its effects. Social, occupational, and rec recreational activities are given up to, um, or continued use despite uh, recurrent or persistent physical or psychological problems. 
So this really brings us to, you know, talking about the spectrum of alcohol use. Alcohol use really falls on a continuum, which can range from not drinking at all to at-risk drinking, where there are not consequences yet, to harmful, and then severe dependence or chronic dependence. And the distinction between severe dependence and chronic dependence is often that they have more symptoms of dependence on that seven of those seven um, items. And also these are the patients we see cycling in and out, you know, who, um, of treatment programs, et cetera. So what would be the most appropriate uh, next step in addressing her alcohol use? Referral to an outpatient alcohol treatment program to perform a brief alcohol intervention, send her home with instructions to stop drinking, or start a benzodiazepine to avoid alcohol withdrawal. Great, 76% said um, perform a brief alcohol intervention. Um, and this is correct because she is a hazardous drinker. Um, she's drinking just above the limits, three to four uh, on an occasion. And really the goal would be to try and just get her to cut down to uh, less risky use. So what is a brief alcohol intervention? Also, we could call it SBIRT, screening, brief intervention, or referral to treatment. It's a brief directive interaction that provides personalized feedback based on alcohol use and related problems. This could be elevated liver function tests, depression, HIV medication adherence. And the goal is to offer specific drinking reduction strategies, such as goal setting for safer drinking, alternatives to drinking, uh, how to manage risky moods or situations. The idea of brief alcohol intervention initially is to really help an individual reduce their level of alcohol use from hazardous levels down to less risky levels. It's low cost and it's effective treatment to promote re reductions in drinking in non-dependent individuals and to facilitate referral to treatment in dependent individuals. So these are the components of a brief alcohol intervention. Um, and for those of you who come to the workshop, we'll go over this in more detail. But the first is obviously to screen for alcohol use and to ask all patients. And then you want to assess um, whether the person um, has had consequences and assess their risk. So you're going to ask if they've had a family history of alcohol use, if they've had legal, medical, or social consequences, if they have alcohol dependence. And then you're going to provide feedback on drinking um, and on these consequences, and then making a recommendation for quitting or cutting down. These really only take a few minutes um, in clinical practice. So in terms of how do you advise your patient, the first thing you need to do is really assess um, their readiness to change. Um, so you might ask on a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are you to change your alcohol use? On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that you can change your alcohol use? Now, if an individual is ambivalent, uh, this is where techniques like motivational interviewing come in. Um, you may want to ask them, what are some of the good things and what are some of the not so good things about drinking? And the idea is really to do what's called develop discrepancy. What you want to do is have the person examine their alcohol use in, in the same uh, face of examining what their values are and to have them sort of think a little bit about how these may conflict. And that's actually a very simple way to do this. And just to digress for one second, I've also done this with patients who have um, HIV treatment medication fatigue, just to try and get them to think a little bit about it. 
The other thing that if an individual says that there are five, you know, they're on the scale of five in terms of readiness to change, you might want to say, okay, why are you a five and not a three? And get them to think about why they're a little bit ready to change. Um, so these are ways to, to help people deal with ambivalence and for, for people who really aren't ready to change. And you don't want to force people who aren't ready to change to change because the next thing that they're going to do is just become resistant. Um, if an individual is ready to change, that's where you're going to assist with goals, resources, and referrals um, and arrange for follow-up. So this really um, is a nice way to think about how to advise an individual who's ready to change. And this is where you're really going to think about, is the person a hazardous drinker? Is this person um, a harmful drinker where they've had some consequences? Um, or is the individual dependent? So if they're a hazardous drinker and they've had no consequences, you can advise them to cut down to safer limits. Um, if they have harmful alcohol use but no dependence, maybe some consequences, you can either talk about cutting down or abstinence. And for those who are dependent, are pregnant, have conditions where alcohol use is not recommended, if they're having blackouts, um, then you would recommend abstinence. So referral to treatment. Um, this is for alcohol-dependent individuals. Um, and, you know, there are studies among persons with HIV that have demonstrated that any drug treatment, and this was a study among women, was associated with improved antiretroviral adherence. So being familiar with local resources for substance abuse treatment, for psychiatric care, um, the inpatient and outpatient treatment, and also to be aware when an individual is dependent, they'll need to be um, detoxed. So case two. V.S. is a 45-year-old male with HIV with a CD4 count of 96 and an HIV RNA of 149,000 copies. He's had multiple pneumonias over the past three years and has not regularly participated in clinical care. He recently completed a 28-day alcohol detoxification program and is ready to start antiretroviral therapy. He's now in an outpatient treatment program and has been abstinent for six weeks. So he has HIV. Hypertension, history of prescription narcotic misuse. He's currently on buprenorphine naloxone and he has no allergies. All of the following are appropriate treatment options for him, except one, initiate antiretroviral treatment with assistance from adherence counselors. Two, consider a camprosate for relapse prevention. Three, consider naltrexone for relapse prevention. And four, refer him to psychiatry for co-management of concurrent mental health disorders. Okay, so 37% said consider naltrexone for relapse prevention. And um, the reason we wouldn't use naltrexone is he's actually on buprenorphine naloxone. And so, this, so the use of naltrexone is actually contraindicated. Um, the correct answer here is consider a camprosate for relapse prevention. And this actually, we're going to segue into um, a discussion now on alcohol pharmacotherapy. So why deliver alcohol pharmacotherapy in an HIV care setting? Alcohol dependence is a chronic medical condition. I'm sure you've heard many people, you know, describe it similar to something like diabetes. There's a strong genetic component, a strong environmental component, um, and pharmacotherapy may improve outcomes. 
Uh, medications can target neurotransmitters um, involved in the reinforcing um, effects of alcohol use. Um, alcohol is involved with the corticomesolimbic dopamine system in the brain, and there are several transmitters involved um, in the reward effects related to alcohol use. So targeting some of these um, may actually assist in improved outcomes. It's been shown to be beneficial in combination with non-pharmacologic therapy, um, including counseling and other behavioral therapies. And it is important to realize when you use pharmacotherapy, this really does need to go hand in hand with some sort of brief behavioral counseling. And it can help reduce relapse and help maintain abstinence. So HIV clinics offer a potential opportunity for the integration of pharmacotherapy, given that we take care of patients longitudinally. Um, we have an integration of a variety of specialty services um, in many states, funding for prescription medications, um, and intensive case management models that promote outreach um, and retention of patients who are often challenging to treat. And the truth is, when we think of our patients with alcohol dependence, they may go into a detox and come out and really have nothing else. And so how do you actually start someone on a medication and follow them if they're not going to stay in a treatment program long term? So there are some limitations. Um, they've not been studied among persons with HIV, though trials are underway. And the efficacy is modest um, in clinical trials. There are currently four FDA-approved therapies, which include naltrexone in oral and injectable forms, um, acamprosate, and um, disulfiram. So briefly, just to, to run through these, um, naltrexone blocks opioid receptors, which are associated with the increased pleasure from drinking. Thus, it reduces the reward response um, associated with drinking. Um, it's been shown to decrease heavy drinking and days to relapse, drink, drinking days and relapse to heavy drinking and to decrease craving. And in a recent Cochrane systematic review um, published last year where they examined 50 RCTs, where they examined uh, the efficacy of naltrexone, they found that um, use of naltrexone versus placebo was associated with a 17% decrease in return to heavy drinking, improvement in GGT, and 4% reduction in drinking days. The dose is 50 milligrams a day, but you do titrate the dose um, from 12.5 to 25, and then um, increase to 50. The patient must be opioid-free for seven to 10 days and alcohol-free for five days. You do not want to use this in pregnancy, and you want to treat for a minimum of two months. You need to monitor the LFTs because naltrexone is associated with hepatitis. Other side effects include nausea, headache, dizziness, nervousness, insomnia. So there's also um, a depot naltrexone, which is an extended release injection. Um, and in a randomized uh, controlled trial, which the reference is on this slide, I accidentally left it off yours. Um, they gave a shot of 380 milligrams monthly, and they saw a 25% decrease um, in the event rate of heavy drinking days in the naltrexone compared to placebo. Again, it's important to have abstinence prior to treatment initiation. Um, similar side effects to PO naltrexone. Um, the biggest uh, thing to be aware of came out after um, FDA approval, which is an injection site reaction. Um, where people did get cellulitis and induration and abscess, and I think there were a couple of cases of necrosis. I don't know how common of an event this was, but it, um, there was an FDA release related to that. 
So acamprosate works on the glutamate and GABA transmitter systems, and it increases the duration of abstinence among alcohol-dependent individuals. It's been shown to have moderate efficacy in European trials, but this has not been replicated in the United States. Um, in, a, in a meta-analysis, again done by Cochrane, um, of 24 RCTs, um, they found that acamprosate reduced the risk of, heavy, of any drinking by 14% and increased the cumulative abstinence duration. Um, people can't really figure out why it hasn't been shown to be effective in the U.S. Um, the dose is 666 milligrams three times a day, um, and, if, and you do need to make dose adjustments um, if in renal failure. It is um, initiated post-detoxification, and it's uh, pregnancy category C. And finally, just to touch briefly on disulfiram, which I think um, we've probably heard the most about, um, it does inhibit aldehyde dehydrogenase, um, which leads to increased levels of acetaldehyde, which can lead to then flushing, tachycardia, sweating, nausea, vomiting, and headache if a patient drinks alcohol. It's generally recommended that you obtain informed consent prior to administering, actually, because of this reaction with alcohol, and also to you know, ensure that patients know that they um, really can't even take over-the-counter medications with um, an alcohol component. We want to monitor LFTs closely because there, is, um, there, has been, there have been cases of fulminant hepatitis. Um, patients can also have neuropathy. Some disadvantages, it is metabolized by the CYP3A system, um, and so may, there may be uh, a number of drug-drug interactions. Um, disulfiram tends to be effective when people actually watch individuals take the pill. And so you might see people use it in methadone treatment uh, programs where individuals will actually be monitored and get their disulfiram with uh, methadone. Um, it's unclear if it will affect um, art pharma pharmacokinetics, but studies are underway. And there are numerous drug-drug interactions with amitriptyline, warfarin, isoniazid, metronidazole, um, et cetera. And you don't want to use non-prescription drugs that contain alcohol. So this is actually the exciting thing about pharmacotherapy, is really the future directions. Um, there are several drugs under investigation, including topiramate, which actually has, has shown um, pretty large effect sizes um, on Dancitron, um, SSRIs, combination therapies. And what's interesting is the more we learn about um, alcohol pharmacotherapy, um, people are really starting to talk about pharmacogenomics and personalized medicine. Because what they found, for example, is that even in the trials of naltrexone, individuals um, with specific um, uh, genetic, uh, at the, uh, the mu opioid receptors, uh, specific phenotypes uh, respond better to the treatments. And it, um, I meant genotype. And similarly, they're seeing that with ondansetron and SSRIs. So um, it's really sort of a time where people are really starting to think about how are we going to be able to personalize therapies so that we actually get the maximum benefit from these different, different um, pharma, pharmacotherapeutic agents um, and specifically, you know, looking at the genetic polymorphisms. Um, so it, I think, you know, in the next few years as things move forward, we're going to even have a better idea of how to appropriately use these um, agents um, to maximum benefit. So just to summarize, um, you know, going back to the continuum of alcohol use, 
you know, you really want to get a sense of whether the individual is drinking at hazardous levels or at-risk levels, harmful levels, if they have severe or chronic dependence. And where the individual falls on this continuum then sort of dictates um, how you approach this individual in treatment. So if they're an at-risk drinker, you may perform brief alcohol intervention. If they're, if they're harmful drinkers or severe, pharmacotherapy and behavioral treatment uh, may be more appropriate. And so getting a sense of really what the extent uh, of an individual's alcohol use is, is critical to their management. So I just want to spend the last two minutes talking about um, the importance of identifying concurrent mental health um, and, uh, disorders. So among the general population with a lifetime history of drug, drug use disorders, over half are affected by a mental health disorder. And 24% of individuals with lifetime diagnoses of major depression have met criteria for a lifetime substance use disorder. Specifically among persons with HIV, 13% of patients receiving care um, in the United States had co-occurring psychiatric symptoms and either both drug dependence or heavy drinking. And in a more recent study in, among veterans, hazardous drinkers were 2.5 times more likely and binge drinkers two times more likely to meet criteria for depression. So psychiatric disorders may worsen the negative health and social consequences of alcohol dependence and interfere with treatment of substance use disorders. Substance use among individuals with mental illness can lead to worsening symptoms, increased hospitalizations, decreased medication or appointment adherence, homelessness, and it leads to higher costs in general. I've included two screens just for your reference. One is just a very brief uh, two-question depression screen um, that you can ask if someone screens positive for alcohol misuse. Um, and then this is a generalized, uh, for, for generalized anxiety. And um, the speakers after me will be talking quite a bit about PTSD. So the key, though, really, is that when individuals have these triple diagnoses, substance use, mental health disorders, and HIV, we really need to think about what their barriers are. Um, they need to navigate several different healthcare settings. Their care is often fragmented. And so this really sort of brings together, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about already um, in this conference, which is integrated care, which combines HIV primary care with mental health and substance abuse services, and where you have a single coordinated treatment program where actually rather than having services um, offered in parallel or sequential, these can all be sort of managed together. Um, and this can be difficult, um, you know, particularly when we think of some of the barriers in our own clinics with getting individuals in treatment programs to get their counselors to talk to us, for us to talk to the psychiatrist, but figuring out a way to get around these barriers to actually optimize care of our patients. So there are many components of these integrated um, care systems, but I would say the most important, I would say, is the multidisciplinary provider communication and shared decision-making among the collaborators. So in summary, um, alcohol use is prevalent among persons with HIV and associated with worse HIV treatment outcomes. Screening, intervention, and referral to treatment for these disorders is an integral part of clinical care. And identification of these current concurrent mental health disorders is an important aspect of treating alcohol misuse in clinical settings. Um, and I would uh, welcome any questions. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent.
We have quite time for some questions. If someone wants to come to the microphone or pass your questions forward. Such an interesting topic and is so well woven into just the general aspect of HIV care. It's important that we address it really at every visit. Thank you. You can stand right there. Maybe I'm showing my age here. Here's a question for you. <laughs> Let this young doctor answer this question. So I actually, um, this is actually, uh, should we go to the microphone first? Your mic's on. Oh, should we, do you want to go ahead? Oh, sure, thank you. I'm Lawrence Golden from Mendocino, California. Um, not at the last session, but at the one two years ago, we had a talk from one of the psychiatrists, Johns Hopkins, who gave a very interesting quiz of everyone here about addiction. How many of you are addicted to coffee? All the hands go up. Everybody has a laugh when he explains the psychiatric definition of addiction. You have to rob people, destroy your social life to get what you want, and then we realize we weren't addicted. So my question is, under the new guidelines and the new manuals, I did, the word addiction doesn't appear anywhere in your outline, for example. Yeah. Are we getting away from that as a concept? And no. Where, where would we, when would we talk about alcohol addiction here? So um, actually, we're, we're not getting away from addiction. I, I tend not to use that mostly because I think, you know, specifically it's nice to kind of think about these very discrete categories, but certainly uh, the term addiction is still used, and it tends to be individuals who are um, either have dependence to a substance or are actually have some of these behaviors, um, these drug-seeking drug behaviors, have they had some consequences? I think the biggest thing really is, you know, this inability to really cut down or to get control um, over your use. Um, so they're not, so in the DSM, they have dependence, they have, they're, they are moving away from the abuse. Addiction is very much still an important concept. I just, in conceptualizing the continuum of alcohol use, in many ways, it's, easiest to conceptualize it this way in terms of how do we target then our interventions and what we're actually going to do in our clinical care. Great. A uh, quick question here is about the use of ampersate in folks that have alcoholic cirrhosis or hepatic decompensation. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, Right now, uh, you know, there's, there is a risk of, of using these, pharmacothera these pharmacotherapies in individuals with um, cirrhosis. Um, there is a medication that is being studied which would actually be specifically appropriate for individuals with cirrhosis. Um, it's not FDA approved yet, so, um, but they are studying baclofen, which has had um, good, which seems to, in clinical trials, have a decent effect size. Um, which would be safer to use in individuals with um, with liver disease. Right. And any rationale behind the age of 65 to use as a hazardous drinking cutoff? Yeah. So um, I, I I believe the thought is is that as individuals age, actually, um, you know, their how their body actually metabolizes and, tol and, and tolerates the alcohol um, does does change. Um, and so we already see the difference between men and women at baseline because uh, for many different reasons related to 
body water and and how uh, and etc. Um, and I and that's the same the same thought as people actually age as well. I'm not sure that that was articulate enough. Oh, that was good. Could you also maybe just briefly talk about how you recommend assessing a patient's buy-in or readiness to medical interventions or the patient I'm sorry, care? The assessing the readiness yep. again. Yep. So often um, what I do is, is really I, I take out a ruler or I just draw one or I'll just say it on a scale of 1 to 10, how ready are you to, to change your alcohol use um, and, and find out where they sort of fall. And some people will say 8, some people will say 2, some people will say 5. And um, usually if someone's an 8, a 9, or a 10, I would say they're pretty ready to change and we'll sort of talk about um, reduction strategies um, and setting goals. And it's really sort of people who fall in the middle where I start to really ask questions about, tell me a little bit about why you're a 6 and not a 4, um, to get them to kind of tell me why they're a little bit ready to change but not completely. And when people are a zero or a one or a one, they're really not ready. And that's where, you know, uh, techniques related to motivational interviewing are actually very helpful because you really should not push someone when they're resistant because all that happens is they become more resistant. So in motivational interviewing, we call that rolling with resistance. It's the idea that you just kind of need to dial back. And I think as clinicians, you know, we, we like to sort of push and, and then the patient will push back, and so the idea is to not do that. Um, and then asking about confidence is also really important because that really brings up issues related to self-efficacy. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you that you can make this change? Um, we have a question here. It says, among teenagers on antiretroviral therapies, there's a common practice of holding or skipping antiretrovirals so they not interfere with alcohol. Um, they claim they do this because their doctor told them about um, alcohol and drug interactions with ARVs. And this is so common, not just among, I think, adolescents, but also adults. I take care of all um, drug users, so my patients who use cocaine will say the same thing to me. Well, I didn't take my HIV therapy because I went on a cocaine binge. And really having to sit down and say, you know, um, there is there is not you know a significant clinical interaction that we're aware of, and you just need to take your medications. Um, and it's not and the alcohol use isn't going to affect how your HIV medications work um, in a clinically significant way. I mean, I think that this is being studied these alcohol ARV interactions, but my general thought is just to really try and work with them and explain that actually they they should be taking the medications. And and I see this with all drugs. I'm sorry. Um, Dr. Souza from Fort Myers, Florida. The number of drinks for men and women, seven for women and 14 for men, how did they come up with this number? Was there a clinical trial that they did? You know, I, I also get asked that quite a bit. And um, I have not seen a clinical trial. I think this is sort of where it has fallen out in terms of um, where they tend to see um, the consequences in the men or the women, and it is based on the different biological effects. What we do know is that women experience the adverse effects of alcohol at much lower levels of use. So if a man and a woman are drinking the same amount, a woman will develop the consequences, whether they're neurological or liver-related, um, at these lower levels of use. Um, so where the exact numbers come from, 
you know, I, I'm not clear on that, but I can tell you that there is a difference between men and women, and, and that is quite clear. And I will also say that we are currently doing some studies looking at alcohol thresholds, and these, these are bearing out. Is it the way women metabolize yes. alcohol in the liver, the cytochrome, you know, whatever the alcohol dehydration is, enzyme, is it, the, is it related to that? So or we don't know yet. Yeah, it's multifactorial. It's believed to be related to that, but also related to total body water. Um, so that it's considered to be multifactorial and not entirely known, the entire mechanism. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I have this question. Once pharmacotherapy for alcohol dependence is initiated, how long should it be continued forever? Um, question forever. So that's a really good question. Um, that has not, uh, the, the total duration hasn't been studied. I recently read a paper um, by Mark Willembring, who was the, uh, was, is the past head of the treatment arm for the NIAAA, and, and he, I believe it was him, it was either him or Ben Coley Johnson, they're two big uh, pharmacotherapy researchers, and they said at least six months, um, but that is not, um, that has, the duration has not been studied in the, in, that I know of in the clinical trial. Okay. Well, thank you so much.